welcome to the platform to perform podcast the podcast for athletes coaches and anyone looking to perform at their highest level if performance is your goal we aim to provide you with the platform to perform i'm your host as always todd davidson and on episode 26 of the platform to perform podcast it is my absolute pleasure to speak with an, an to speak with a new york times bestseller and author of one of my favorite books essentialism greg McKeown, how are you doing today I'm doing great. It's great to be with you, Todd. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, the first thing I'd love you to share with the listeners is the first place where I came across uh, your work. And that was the story of how you first started on the path to becoming an essentialist. I received an email from my boss at the time that said Friday between one and two would be a bad time for your wife to have a baby. because I need to be, you to be at this client meeting. And uh, sure enough, we were in the hospital on that Friday. Our daughter had just been born. And instead of being focused on that moment that mattered most, instead of being present and to enjoy it and to be supportive fully, uh, instead, I'm on email, I'm logged in, I'm hooked up, and I'm feeling torn about how to keep everybody happy. And to my shame, I go to the client meeting uh, and even afterwards, I remember my manager saying, look, the client will respect you for the choice you just made. Uh, but the look on their faces didn't evince that sort of respect. At least that's not what I saw. Uh, and it's clear, I think, to anybody hearing the story that I made a fool's bargain. And what I learned was an important lesson, which was if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. And, and really, that has given me fire for the deed uh, in writing essentialism uh, and then also now in, in developing other. Um, I, I just finished a new book and I have a, the, the Essentialism podcast. And all of these are an attempt to be able to help people uh, that are otherwise feeling stretched too thin at work or at home, feel busy, but not necessarily productive or that their day is constantly hijacked by other people's agenda for them. Um, and, and that's really who the book is for and who my work is primarily focused on. And you, you mentioned in your book, you have to be careful that somebody else's problem doesn't become your own problem. And you just said about there about you have, we start the day with all these grand plans and somebody hijacks your day. Uh, what kind of systems do you put in place personally to ensure that what is essential is protected? Well, I'm just developing just now the essential planner, uh, which is based on years and years of keeping a journal and various planners. I mean, literally, I've been doing it for more than 20 years. I, I barely missed a day in the last 10 years of my own planning process, uh, which includes, I mean, I normally just think of it as a paper journal, but it's a lot more than that. Uh, and, and that obvious thing actually is the first thing it's create space, not to do, but to think and plan and dream and prioritize so that you aren't in a non-essentialist cycle, non-essential activity begets non-essential activity. If you start getting to the point where you're just going from Zoom meeting to Zoom meeting and there's no break in it and you're sitting, 
you look at your Fitbit at the end of the day and you're at 300 steps, uh, it, that is going to create more of the same because you'll have less and less time to reflect. And so any request from anybody starts to feel as important as any other activity. Now, the most important people in your life with the most important requests will seem the same as the latest person who texted you, emailed you, messaged you on any number of the inputs on LinkedIn. Suddenly you're responding to them when your spouse you know, needs your attention or your child is, 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 uh, could do with a good listening to or your top client could be, you know, you could be contributing or your most important project that could help increase your value significantly and your contribution overall. All of these things start to seem the same importance. And of course, they're nothing like the same importance. But this kind of busyness begets more busyness. So you start by creating some space, protect that space above all else to to plan, I prefer paper and pen and actually identifying, for example, just what's the most important thing that I need to do today. Even just that question and just getting some clarity on that will help you not to be so bowled over by everything going on around you. And speaking about not being bowled over about things coming around, I'm really interested to hear about because journaling is something that comes up with a lot of successful uh, entrepreneurs. Do you have a specific system in place when you journal? Do you ask yourself a specific set of questions when you're doing this? Uh, yes, there's there's quite a, a system I've used. And, and of course, all, everybody's systems ought to be personalized to the way that what works for them. Mine has evolved and changed over time. Uh, but among the elements that I think are really valuable uh, is to hold a personal quarterly offsite. Um, and that I use that term loosely. Maybe it's a whole weekend. Maybe you've spread it out over the, over the course of a couple of weeks, but it's not all day long. But you are taking time at the end and the beginning of each quarter to stand back. Uh, like Bill Gates had a think week. He did that every six months. Um, I, I, I do a similar thing. My every six months is a longer period than my, you know, every 90 days. But it's a chance to ask all the big questions. Uh, who, who do you want to be? Um, what, what is your highest mission in life? What will matter at the very, very end? Uh, how are you really using your time? How you know, how are you, what are your current habits? These are all questions that I think are precursor questions in the quarterly offsite before you get to also useful questions like what a, you know, look at your, well, for me, every six months, what's my six monthly goals? Then what are my monthly projects? And none of this is revolutionary, but the difference between your effectiveness if you do it and the effectiveness if you don't is enormous. Either way you'll work, either way you'll put in hours, but the types of work you do can be really different based upon that, you know, practice. And how do you go about, um, dare I say, planning your dead time? So 
when I when I read your when I've read your work, one of the things that leapt off the page to me is uh, me personally. I almost feel if I'm just sat there doing nothing, I almost think, oh, this is a time cost, and I could be, for example, working on a podcast, I could be blogging, and before you know it, you you could literally fill it with absolutely anything. Um, so my first part of the question is, um, how do you sell the idea of planning in dead time to people who are, I don't know, your type A people or your entrepreneurs who do have to get stuff done? That's the first part of my question. Uh, so how do you sell the idea of dead time? And the second part would be, how do you go about planning time where you're doing nothing for want of a better word? The, the top performers in any field uh, work in rhythms. I mean, I just, this idea that you've got to be working harder and harder and harder 24-7 in order to be success, I think is simply not what the research supports. It's not what actually works. Of course you need to work. Of course you want to put focused hours in to, to, to focus set of goals if you want to make progress on them. But this idea of 24-7, don't sleep, hustle culture uh, i i don't uh, i don't subscribe to it at all and and uh, i just think the top performers let me just take anders ericsson's research where he said okay well we all know that we sleep in rich in in um in rhythms 90 minute approximately sleep cycles he said he wondered does it stop at the end of sleep or is it a human phenomenon that we're observing when we study sleep cycles and he found in his research that it does continue so it's a it's just the human system works in approximately 90 minute cycles so if you treat your body like a machine like a factory that never rests that never pauses your effectiveness will be going down considerably and the longer you do it the more it will be so Instead, you want to make sure you are creating space. Well, I'll give you an example. Um, I just finished, I think I already mentioned it, but just finished a new book uh, about a month ago. Uh, just handed it into the editor. And, um, and the temptation for me was jump into all the things you've been putting off because you've been in monk mode on the book. And my wife, Anna, made the sensible suggestion, look, let's take a couple of weeks to think, to pause, to relax, to dream, to plan. And that two weeks ended up being four weeks. And, um, and what a wise suggestion it was. It's, it's like a slingshot when you do something like that. You pull back. But in the pulling back, you're, you get to recuperate, you get to heal, your mind gets to, to think and see things it just can't see when you're in a reactive cycle. Uh, and so, so it's just, it's just absolutely key. This was Anders Ericsson found. That's what I found. You must have, you must have breaks. You must have pauses. You must have, I mean, you use the, you use the term dead time. And I don't know that I would use that term, but I, I do think it's space um, to, to, to relax, to learn to relax. Many, high, many otherwise high performers do not know how to relax. They, they, relaxing 
is a responsibility. It is its own competency. And it is absolutely necessary if you want to break through to a higher point of contribution. If you don't care about higher contribution, then don't worry about this. You can just keep going and you can just sort of slightly manage your exhaustion level over time. But if you want to make breakthrough, you must allow your brain to relax and to, and to recuperate in order to spring forward to the next level. Makes a lot of sense. In uh, With the previous podcast guest, uh, a guy called Dan John, he, uh, he said that his daughters would make fun of him because he practices sleeping. And he says, if you're talking from athletic perspectives, business perspectives, a lot of people don't practice the skill, which is switching off at night, getting rid of the monkey brain and doing whatever habits you need to do so that when you sleep for X amount of time it is actually quality sleep, not just I'm shutting my eyes and the brain's still running on in the background. Uh, yeah, I, I, I would concur with that. I'm, uh, I'm a big believer in, in, in not, not just, I mean, you're saying practicing sleep, but just simply prioritizing sleep mm. itself is, it, it is valuable. We've been, conned into believing that one hour less sleep will equal one hour more productivity. Um, and, and at some level, that's true. If you sleep one hour less and you're working on a project one hour more, well, then you have more units. So there's, there's something to be said about that. But, but essentialism goes beyond productivity uh, because what I'm arguing in essentialism is not that we need to do more things. It's that we need to do more of the right things. And so one's ability to discern what those right things are is, is the value add. That's the way we shift to the next level of success. And so you know, I mean, just take anybody in any in any profession. But I, I just chatting with somebody about television, and I mean, if you think about somebody like Oprah. What do we think that she's working ten thousand times harder than the next person on the list, and yet her influence has been that sort of, you know, that much greater. She was reaching when she had her show, uh, primary show, um, you know, hundred million people a week. Well, that's not because you're just working harder it's because you're doing different things well how do you make sure you're doing the right different things that's what the pause is for that's what the relaxation that's what the sleep is for and so on if you go the other extreme i mean as i say to people often if non-essentialism is working for you if saying yes to everyone and everything without really thinking about it is working for you if it's giving you breakthrough results helping you to become more and more successful if it's helping you to establish great relationships with the people who matter most to you if it's helping you to achieve a satisfied life then by all means continue <laughs> i mean don't just ignore everything i have researched and written about but on the basis that non-essentialism is basically um you know a bill of goods that we've been sold and we've bought into but actually doesn't work if, it, if you find yourself saying, well, actually, this approach isn't helping me to get to where I want to be. Uh, if I'm finding myself burning out and not getting the right results, 
then look at an alternative path, an alternative way of thinking, doing, and eventually living a different kind of lifestyle. You touched on a couple of things, which is uh, pointed to the questions I'm about to ask, but one of the things you mentioned was success. And I just want to dive a little bit deeper into that because it's easy for people, for example, when any author has a productivity book, it's very easy to stereotype it as productivity must equal making millions of dollars or whatever. Um, how do you define success? Um, yeah, look, I mean, I think for me, success is, is doing, for me personally, it's doing what I came here to do. Uh, it is, it, it's premised on the, the assumption that I do hold uh, that, uh, that one's unique and essential mission in life must be discerned, not just decided. They're not just, oh, I'm you know, guessing and I'm choosing a few goals and I'm going after it. Um, I, I think that with enough soul searching, enough, um, enough humility in your heart, you can start to sense it and to feel it and to hear it what you are really built to do, what you came here to do. And so to me, success is, is completing that mission, finding it, yes, and then doing it so that at the very end you say, yeah, it is done. It is, it is finished. I, I did what I was supposed to do. And it, it's amazing how, as you said, a lot of people have lofty ideas of what they want to do with their lives. And then you look at the actions they take. And as you said, the day gets hijacked. And they make trade-offs that logically they wouldn't otherwise make. Um, how can people put in, how can people put systems into place to actually? I mean, it sounds a bit stupid, but get them to think logically about the decisions and the trade-offs they're actually making. One little uh, tactic that uh, I've loved and have re, um, you know, reasserted recently is is to make a plan. So in my planner, I make a scheduled plan of the day, um, but there's two columns on the calendar and the second is what I actually did. So it builds in a time log into every day. And I found that helpful. I actually haven't found it depressing myself. I'm sure there, there could be days you might find it a little discouraging to see how different they are. Uh, but it it means that you're, constantly increasing your awareness about where this time is going. Um, and I find that especially helpful when people say things like, oh, you know, I yes, I want to be an essentialist, but how could I say no to my boss's boss and they ask me to do something? And I always think, well, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest that. Uh, and, and I wouldn't start there. Um, start with the things you can control. It's an amazing thing to discover how much time we spend on things that are totally trivial. Uh, and if you keep a time log every day compared to uh, your, your scheduled plan, you, you're going to find that there's more time spent on that particular website or scanning through that particular social media, infinite pool of, of, you know, endless trivia, going to see that oh I, I check on the news x number of times a day and i didn't realize it was that much these are all things we have 
yeah, we can choose to do them or not to do them. We're choosing to do them. We can make a different trade-off. And suddenly you say, well, even if that's half an hour or an hour a day, I mean, I talked to somebody recently who's into the, into politics and I said, well, how long have you spent on it the last uh, few months? He said, well, probably I average one to three hours a day reading about these things. I mean, this is, this is just like a, almost a part-time job. Is that really the very best use of that time? Does he really not have other things he could do? Uh, to, to relax, to play, uh, to do something that matters, that moves the world forward. Uh, that, that's one part of a system that I think can be helpful. And another part of a system which um, I think you're particularly skilled at, especially when I read your uh, book, is your ability to craft questions in such a way that actually lead to a more productive answer. Um, Case in point, again, this wasn't directly from your book, but in your chat with Tim Ferriss, you talked about uh, how much time you would need to commit to something that he was under investing in to feel like he was making his biggest contribution. And then you flipped it and said, well, what are you over investing in that doesn't require or is taking away from that contribution, which I particularly liked because and what I like with what you said about what I actually did column, the amount of days people have where they're like, well, I haven't stopped yeah, I've got nothing done. How can this be so? So I'd, I'd love the idea of bringing awareness to that. Um, something else I wanted to ask you about is how do we how do we systematize or set ourselves up in such a way that we can avoid either a decision fatigue or b, as you mentioned earlier, just saying yes to the latest request that comes into our inbox. Uh, yeah, those those are uh, two different different questions. I think. Um, I mean, one of the things I think you can do to help with decision fatigue um, is to design a dream routine for your week. So this is going to change over time. It's a uh, it's a you know it's like a design school exercise where you're just saying, look, if I could dream and have it however I wanted to use these precious hours what would I do with them not not this week I just mean every week um, then then over time as you keep adjusting that maybe the first one you did wasn't at all realistic because you put half an hour down for do, writing this particular essay or something and it really it took two hours to do it and so you have to keep adjusting this dream to what really can be done uh, but as you do that you start to have to make fewer choices um so so you don't have to choose when to do everything you don't have to choose when am i getting up and when am i going to sleep and when am i eating and when am i uh you know uh, doing my planning and when i mean these things don't have to be decided every day again and again and again so those are that's one category of choices that as you design your life as you do it not just with your on your own uh, i mean something we're doing right now is is with a whole family so here we are in COVID times uh, my wife here and we have four children and literally we're all using a planner I mean the same planner so they're learning they're young I mean the youngest is 11 the oldest is 17 and we're saying we all need to be doing this we all need to create a dream routine we all need to be looking at how that works and it's an ongoing journey but the the output is that we aren't just reacting and having to make the same decisions, you know, a hundred times over. So I think routine is a powerful way to, to, to start improving on what would otherwise be decision fatigue. 
I'm really interesting that you said about your kids because that's actually a question that I had later on. Um, so I work in a school uh, at the moment and it's so hard as someone who, for example, has experienced more life than they have. So, you know, for example, you can't do this because otherwise you're going to get stuck at this bit. Mm. How do you, so for example, with your uh, 11-year-old, how do you stop yourself from overwhelming them? And how do you, I suppose, teach them essentialist principles without, I don't know, literally chucking the book at them, if that makes sense? Yeah, I mean, there's been a, there's been a lot of things that, that, that we've done with our children. When, when, we, when I was traveling, um, I would have about 80% of the time I'd have one of my children come with me. And almost all the time, clients just had them sit in the session uh, and so they have literally heard and filled out the exercises that we have there you know, many, many times. And there's no, there's no pressure. There's no exam afterwards. There's no, but they just get to hear it and to think about these questions and these ideas. And so they are adopting language just from that. Uh, and so I, I think you've got to, you got to think about essentialism like teaching a language. Uh, our children attended Spanish immersion uh, school for six years, um, and each of them did that. And so they, you know, they are effectively bilingual now. And the, you sort of think about essentialism in the same way, is that the world that speaks non-essentialism, that's the dominant culture, but we want to introduce a new language, a new, so that we can have a new conversation. And so I think it's introducing essentialism as a language. Uh, I think that you can do that very early with children. You can, they can learn Spanish, they can learn essentialism. They can learn what a trade-off is. They can learn prioritization, what it means and how to do it. What's, what's their most important thing today? They can learn how to plan. They can learn how to set goals. They don't have to be perfect or anything like it at any of these things. But there's no reason we have to wait for people to be 30 years old to teach these ideas. Uh, and, and so that's, I think, the, the first you know, breakthrough is our own mental block that says, oh, I can't teach. You know, they're too young to know these things. You can learn a language. If you can learn your first primary language by observation, you can learn a logical language like essentialism. And out of interest, do, they, do you find it difficult when it comes to because as you said a lot of non-essentialism stuff is preached in the media and even the even the technological world as we know it like million and one apps and the fear of missing out do you find it difficult with them to try and get them to recognize how much the world speaks almost contradictory to what your book preaches do you find that difficult or has that improved over time well, I mean, I, I feel the tension you're describing. Uh, and I think it's not unique to children. It's true for just about every team and company and, and group everywhere. Uh, because they're all feeling that same pull of this current culture, this constant distraction, this constant, you know, infinite pools of options and optionality. Uh, what I think we've tried to do here with our children is the same as what I think people need to do on their teams, which is that after you've like you read the book together or you read 
you know, idea, share certain principles, however you're going to do that. A book club with children, you might have to do it in a different kind of teaching format. But as you, as you introduce the language, what you're really trying to do is create a culture. Uh, and so in our home, I mean, we now, even before COVID, started doing home education for you know, one child for one year and then evolved it from there. And, and without really ever forcing the subject, there is now a culture and it's not, it's not a cold culture. You know, that's what, it's not minimalism. It's not a minimalist culture. It's essentialist culture. Essentialism prioritizes first protecting the asset so that they have mind, body, heart, spirit, strength, so that they're in a healthy place to be able themselves to discern so that they can participate in intelligent conversations so that they can themselves start to receive their own um, internal guidance so that they know one, one of my, in fact, my 11 year old, and it was before COVID felt really strongly about this particular goal. And it was very clear that this had come from within her to achieve it. She needed some external help from us, but the, but the initiative for it came from within her. That was a really important breakthrough because what, how we see it with our children is that our primary role of leadership, of parenting, is to, is to help them be guided not by us. And, of course, not by all the FOMO and the outside noise, but by listening inside. I think that that idea of creating a culture is the primary um, achievement with our own family that now because we're because you're prioritizing personal health and the family relationships uh, and then the discernment about all the things out there you can think of those as three concentric circles right protect the asset most important essential relationships than everything else out there if you get the order right day in and day out as you build your own routines and your expectations and your way of living and working it starts to be and this is what i have experienced myself much much easier to achieve the the results that you are looking for there's very little resistance as you want to start new things as you you cuz cuz there's a feeling of trust and safety and so you can make unified decisions and do it together and then make those things happen together. And, and so, so, I mean, that's, that's all in the family arena, uh, but in, in workplaces too, I've seen it, it. I've seen this work. No, I, I like that a lot. I, I'm not sure. I don't think it was your book. I think it might've been another book. Um, but the book was speaking about, for example, family business, and obviously, a lot of entrepreneurs, for example, will say they're prioritizing their business in the current moment with the idea that it will bring the family money later on. And one of the analogies in the book was something like missing your eight year old's first football match, baseball match, whatever, but then taking them to a game 10 years later saying it, it doesn't quite equate. Um, what what you've kind of alluded to it there, to be fair, but what advice would you give to entrepreneurs or people who have the mindset of right let's work hard for the next 10 20 30 years so that we can secure the future and what advice would you give in terms of i guess almost disrupting that thinking a little bit and trying not to drop the ball 
with the family or with relationships? Yeah, the, those concentric circles I just mentioned, the difference between a non-essentialist and an essentialist is that the non-essentialist works from the outside in and the essentialist works from the inside out. That inside out prioritization, the order really, really matters. If you protect the asset, you, your health, are particularly living in a way that you can have clear discernment about what matters, then you invest in your relationships, then you figure out what the few things are you're going to do out there. If you do that order, you, you have a pretty good chance of getting all the above. If you go from the outside in, that's like, if you start with the outside thing, that's everything out there. I mean, that's like drinking the ocean. You will never be done. You can never be done. There is no such thing as arriving. There's no, there's no entrepreneur. I, ever met, I never met an entrepreneur who is like anything like a real entrepreneur who said, oh, yes, I've, I've reached everything and that's it. I'm, I've just done this. I mean, there's always another number to hit. There's always another business to start. There's always another customer to reach. There's always something that's exciting that can pull you further and further from the people that matter most to you. And so it's typical that people who start from the outside in, by the time they get back to the most important people in their life, they're, not, they're no good to them. They're burned out. They're worn out. They're exhausted for the day. They show up late. They show up at unpredictable times. They turn up. Dinner's been missed. Or people are just eating their own things. So everyone's separate. Everyone's on their own devices. We don't know if people are home or not. I mean, you just show up and you, you, you're just no use. And so then you, you're, sort of, you're maybe there physically, but you're not there present. You're not present. And there's none of your life force and energy and love to be able to really offer. And so your relationships start to get strained. That's no good. That's not easy. That's no fun. And then finally, what's left, what's left for you at the end of the day? Is there's nothing left of people... Somebody just told me recently, well, at midnight, I, uh, I'm on the, um, you know, I go on Zillow for two hours and just scrolling through Zillow and looking at all stuff and it, instead of sleeping. And so that's the pattern of the non-essentialist. You just start wearing everything out. So the easiest, simplest idea in the world is just reverse the order from the inside out. And it's funny, just hearing you say that reminds me of another analogy I've read in another book, and it talks about certain things in our life being rubber balls. If you let them go, they will bounce back. But certain things like your family, your relationships, your health, you let them go, they're glass balls, they hit the floor and they just shatter. Um, but yeah, hearing you hearing you say that, it also reminds me of me and my partner were talking in lockdown. So we've been in a long distance relationship for seven of the eight years we've been together. But we're lucky enough in lockdown to actually live together for six months. And we just came to the conclusion, we both love what we do. But we said, wouldn't it be great? We can both financially afford to work part time. Um, it would be great just to have, for example, three days of work, four days. And whether they're four days with each other, whether it's two days working on independent projects, we just said, you know what, there's with money, whatever, as long as there's a roof over our heads. But actually, there's certain things which, as you said, once you get to a certain level, the trade off for time is just not necessarily worth it. Yeah, on on the Essentialism podcast, I had a, a BJ Fogg on and I took a different process, like like you were saying when I was um, talking with Tim Ferriss. I, I did like an essential intervention with him and I said, okay, what's essential for you that you're under 
uh, under investing in it. And he said, well, I want some more time at the weekends. And, and, and he said, I said, how much time? Well, four to eight hours extra would be good. And I said, well, let's make it easier. Let's take two to four hours uh, total extra in the weekend. And he had this physical recoiling at that idea, or, or at least the audible recoiling. And I could tell that that was, that was like, almost like offensive to his spirit that he would go so low. And and so he revealed himself that he already knew that what he needed to do was more, not just eight hours, but actually fully an extra day and to move to a three-day weekend instead of uh, a two-day weekend. And so then we switched the interview because, you know, he does uh, those tiny habits. That's his whole thing is how to make change easy and so I said, okay, well, now you have to use all of your skills and all your knowledge here right now live to show us how you can make the change you've just identified. And so by the end of the show, we had a whole plan down for how he was going to do it. He emailed me a week later to say that he had done it. Uh, and, and I'll tell you something else that was fun is that I, I haven't heard again, I don't think from him you know, since about his experiment, but I was interviewed on someone else's podcast recently. And they said that he'd just been on there talking about the three-day weekend that he is still doing per the conversation we'd had. Uh, so that, that, that's a kind of a fun story, but it supports what you're saying is, is that you can design differently as soon as you get out of the non-essentialist bubble. Um, just one more illustration. There's a company called Uncharted uh, that, uh, that read essentialism. All of them read it together. So again, they got to get the language first so that people have this new mindset and a way of being able to talk about things. They read it together and they start exploring, well, maybe we could use these principles to move to a four-day work week officially. They start a full experiment. They bring in people to help them measure so that it isn't just anecdotal evidence. They're going to find out, can you really do, could they do 32 hours and get the same quality of results as they used to do in 40 hours. So they'd still pay everyone 40 hours, but they've only done 32 hours. Could everyone do it? And they found the, the short of it is they found that they absolutely could, and they've made it official policy of the company now. Uh, and that's because that that's the power of discovering that only a few things really matter. And if you get those few things done, well, what I've found is you can take the rest of the day off just about you, you seriously, if you do three important things at work each day, you're getting more done in the first half of your day than you will if you spend a whole day just doing reactive work. I thoroughly believe that. And then you get yourself into a virtuous cycle because you're relaxed and enjoying your life and just space to think and breathe so that you, again, the next day can work on the right few things instead of reacting to the trivial many. And it's funny what you say there, because one of the things you mentioned in your book is a status quo bias. And it's even got me thinking, I actually don't know where the origins of a nine to five work pattern and then weekends off comes from. I actually, I mean, maybe you do. I'm not, I'm not sure, but it just makes you question why. Well, I mean, it, 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 it itself was actually an achievement and it was, it was partially an achievement of, of the labor uh, unions and, uh, one could argue it's like the most important contribution that they've made uh, was instead of it being seven days or, well, really six days uh, because the Sabbath was, was observed um, more widely. So it was, it was, well, what if it isn't one day a week? What if you could make it two days? And, and I should just 
I just completely imagined that at that time it was seen as as shocking as now saying, well, what if you could have a three-day weekend feels to us? It's like, well, I don't know about that. And wouldn't that just reduce overall contribution? No, <laughs> because we, we're humans. We're an organism. We need rhythms. We need breaks. We, this, is, this is how you get to top performance as a human. Now, if you're a machine, fine. I mean, there's a completely different rhythm. Not rhythm, there's a completely different system. But for humans, we need times of total focus and times of total relaxation. And, and you don't need to do that if you don't want to be a top performer. But if you want to be a top performer, you will need to sleep and you will need to rest and you will need to relax. And, and that is just a fact. And I, I, you can't, I mean, you just can't show me any exceptions to that. If, if the top basketball players in the world, they sleep, they rest, relax. They do a ton of that uh, in order to be able to be at peak performance. And something I'm curious on, because you mentioned, for example, getting the three most important things um, done. So uh, Gary Keller, the, he's the author of a book called The One Thing, uh, another very good productivity book. But in Tim Ferriss's podcast, he mentioned that people think he's like a productivity machine, but actually he's not always go, go, go. But he said his aim is just to have a productive day by noon and then he just takes the rest of the day off, uh, which is interesting because it wasn't written in his book. Um, which again is a very enjoyable read. Um, but do you have any similar sort of mantras in your own life in terms of when you're on, you're on, and when you're cutting off, you're off? Yeah, I mean, that, that what he's describing there, and I didn't write that in Essentialism either, or even really in the new book, um, but, but that is what I have personally experienced. And, and even in this month since finishing it, it's literally like what, what I have been naturally moving to do get up earlier do three cycles i mean i haven't been doing it as as structured as i am currently describing it but basically you do three cycles of about 90 minutes with a break in between and then you're done and here's why here's why you're done is because you're no good anymore (laughs) and and the problem with being sleep deprived is one that your decision-making in general is massively reduced. Therefore, your discernment is down. It also is true that your discernment about being sleep-deprived is down. So sleep deprivation also begets sleep deprivation. Our productivity is so much lower as, as our exhaustion goes up as we have used up those early morning cycles. I, for example, find... Uh, writing, I don't know, close to impossible in the afternoon. Certainly productive progress. Um, and and I think of writing, for me, it's literal, but I think for other people, it's symbolic. It's like work that actually creates value versus maintenance of your life or versus responding to other people actually creating value is a certain type of work and that for me and i think for most people is earlier in the day when you're fresher and you can't do it for five hours straight you you can sit at a computer five hours straight but you cannot be that level of good quality thinking for five hours straight much better 90 minutes take a break 90 minutes take a break 
90 minutes to take a break and pretty much be done. Yeah, I like that. Out of interest, when you when you take a break, so I just um, just to use an example from uh, I guess my personal life. So my partner's just recently finished her PhD, but she said one of the biggest issues until she um, until she developed the habit of going to the gym was that she would spend hours on a computer typing away, but then the relaxation time might be watching the TV on the computer, and that she didn't really feel like she had that literal detachment from her work so when you when you take a break is there any specific things that you go to do you get away from the screen do you exercise or is it however the day takes you um my my current routine is getting up early i do i do i have a ritual um that includes well i mean honestly it includes prayer for me and it includes reading scripture and it includes like trying to just get a clear vision again of who I want to be. That's a different question than what I want to do. Uh, and that's sort of my first ritual. But after that, I'm in writing. And that's approximately a 90 minute cycle, as I mentioned. After that, um, I go for a walk with Anna for about an hour. Um, and then we'll do a little family council after that, which is about a half hour. And so that's kind of my next 90 minute cycle. It's using up one of those cycles for something that is, uh, you know, really important work, but it's also a break from the kind of writing work that, I mean, I, I, I just can't do that many cycles of that. Um, and you don't need to. <laughs> uh, I mean, one of my, one of my favorite principles of writing is like, um, is write two rubbish pages a day. Uh, that, that's what you can do. <laughs> And, but if you do it, if you do it, that's a lot. Uh, and and that adds up. And eventually that can be a book. And, of course, you, you have to keep working on it so it's less rubbish and less rubbish over time. But, you you know, that, that's the way to you know achieve these, these things. So that's an example of one of the breaks that I would take. And it's definitely up and it's out and it's in nature. And it's, uh, it's such a good use of that time. I never, ever regret spending time doing that. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. Ironically, um, one of the main questions I wanted to ask you to bring you on the podcast to ask you about uh, was about uh, buffers and the idea of finding a balance between giving an appropriate buffer uh, whilst avoiding something which I'm sure you're probably familiar with, uh, Parkinson's law. Um, So which is simply that a task will take as long as you allot to it. So how do you strike the balance between not falling foul of giving yourself too little time whilst also not just procrastinating with whatever extra time you've given yourself. Uh, yeah. I mean, buffer has a, has a variety of types. Uh, one is, is what you're alluding to where you say, okay, I'm going to take the task and add a 50% guess as to how long I'll take to do it. I actually don't think that's so contradictory to Parkinson's law uh, it's not the same as saying, okay, I'll take a year to do this task. Uh, you know, you're saying, how long do I think it'll take? Half an hour. Well, give yourself a little more because something will unexpected, you know, unexpected is likely to come up. So you're just not going to be stressed the whole time. I mean, that's, I still stand by that. And I think that's a pretty good balance to, 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 to not fall into the problem Parkinson's is, is identifying uh, but still not being stressed all the time, which is the alternative if you just 
schedule time in your most idealistic, optimistic account you know, estimate of what uh, of, of how long something will take. But buffer is useful beyond that. Uh, buffer creating time on your calendar for unstructured and unanticipated challenges is I think the most useful way to use buffer. So um, uh, one of the CEOs that I talked with when I was writing Essentialism was the CEO of LinkedIn, Jeff Wiener. He uses two hours of buffer every day. Uh, So he breaks that up into four half hour increments. And so it's it's not saying this particular task I need to add buffer to, it's just buffer in every day because he knows things will come up. And by doing that, it means he can refrain from feeling reactive all day long. Because once you get reactive, it tends to beget itself all through the day. Once you start taking an email early in the morning, you start to be full of that frenetic, frantic sensation. Uh, And so I think if you can build buffer in, that just helps with um, that helps with a certain lifestyle, a certain way of being, uh, which is conducive to better decision making as you go along through the day. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. And just in uh, asking your question again uh, from Tim Ferriss's podcast, but this time with Derek Sibbers. Um, so he was saying that uh, this is Derek, that early in your career, you need to be saying yes to everything until you almost earn the right to say no. Um, so I just wondered, given that your the first time I came across your work was when you narrated the two chapters on how to say gracefully say no, I just wondered what your opinion of that is and in terms of whether you should always have the same funnel by which you accept or reject a request or whether that's different when you're early in your career. I, I definitely think uh, Derek's onto something. I was just chatting with Derek again the other day, and and I, I mean, I think he's yeah, he's such an interesting person and in such a such a um, a deliberate decision maker. Uh, I, you know, I I think I think he's right with a with a caveat. I mean, you first of all, you do need to show somebody you're capable. Uh, if you first time you're asked to do something, you say, well, no. Uh, your chances of somebody asking you again is not very high. Uh, so you do need to show I can do things uh, and I'll find a way to do things. And I will show initiative to solve problems and anticipate problems that you, the person I'm doing it for, haven't even anticipated yourself. And in this way, you earn the right to move up. Not not so much just, hey, you move up to the, the level of now you can say no, you've earned the right to say no. It's you earn the right to go one step up the value ladder. If at the, if at the lowest point on that ladder, you're an order taker, somewhere further up the ladder, you've become a trusted advisor. A trusted advisor doesn't say no to everyone and everything without thinking about it either. In fact, in fact, despite how often I write about saying no in essentialism or talk about it elsewhere, I'm keen to point out that I didn't write anywhere or say anywhere that people should say no to everyone and everything without thinking about it. That would be a different book altogether. That would be noism. Um, yeah, this is essentialism. Your, your 
as you move up the ladder, you get to you get the right to have a conversation, to ask a question. And you don't have to be 10 years into your career or 10 years of a relationship to be able to ask a question. You can pause and, and just say, oh, can you explain why you're thinking about that? Can you help me understand what you're trying to achieve? Sometimes you can pause not even with the person, you pause after the request and you just think yourself and don't react and jump into it. What do they really want here? How can I anticipate what they want so that I can not just deliver what they've asked for? Yes, but I can also figure out the next piece of it uh, for them. And and I think in this way, you start to become more valuable uh, and, and are actually working on more essential work. And that's really, I think, the price you have to pay. And I think that makes a lot of sense because a lot of people, and I've certainly been guilty of it as well, where I've perceived myself to be lower in the employment food chain. And I've said yes, because I felt like I didn't have a choice rather than actually thinking, what is it that they want done rather than, oh, they want me to do this task, which nine times out of 10, most people don't. As you, one of the options you offer in your book is if you can't do it, find someone who can. They probably don't care who does the task so long as it gets done. But that value ladder, again, I think that's definitely very useful for people who feel like they've not got a choice, but the reality is they have. They're just not in that specific mindset. Yeah, I, I, I completely concur. Uh, if, if you think you have no choices, if you, if you give up that at the door, uh, then you are very likely to feel and to become a function of just other people's whims. Uh, and and you will continue to be an order taker and to feel out of control and out your calendar's out of control, your day is out of control, and and you feel like your whole life is I have to do this, I have to do that all the day. But the whole life becomes like that, uh, and and so so starting starting just to pause, even if that's where you start, just a few seconds after every request, just pause. What have they asked me to do? I wonder why they've asked me to do that. And you're not even saying it to them yet. You're just pausing. Is is a way to start pushing back on this reactive, non-essentialist way of living. Uh, and 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 as I say, one way you can do that is just asking at the beginning of every day, what's the most important thing I can do today? What's the most important? And if you have a, a, a boss or an internal customer that's your primary priority customer, what's the most important thing I can do for them today? Uh, what what are they trying to achieve? You don't have to get it that from them. You can start discerning. It's not that complicated to figure out, actually. If you just ask the question, uh, answers will start to come, and then you can increase your value and your contributions going up. You become a you know a higher contributor. The essentialism isn't become becoming less helpful. It's becoming more helpful. And. From what you're saying, also thinking about the ways you can be helpful rather than just blindly, oh, Greg, I need you to do this for me. Actually, what does what does this actually entail? Why is that providing value rather than okay, yeah, no problem? Yes, uh, I, I mean there's an example uh, of someone who said no to Steve Jobs and lived to tell the tale, um, and uh, is Paul Rand, and he he was one of the top logoists in the country. And Steve Jobs asked him to come and create the logo at the company after he'd left Apple. Uh, the company was called Next. And so he was there and, and he, he, he brings him in, brings in the consultant, says, here's how you're going to do it. I want you to come up with 
this many options, bring them back to me. I'll tell you what I like, what I hate, and so on. He started outlining it. And Paul Rand literally just said, no, he did say that. He said, no. But the next phrase is actually the more important part. He said, I will solve your problem for you completely. I'll solve your problem for you. I mean, that's the spirit of this. Uh, and and uh, I will... Uh, and, and, you, and you will pay me. <laughs> he said, that's how this is going to be. And Steve talking about this years later said, look, he, he brought me a jewel of a logo and then added, uh, you know, he was the ultimate professional, the ultimate professional. I mean, what, a, what a thing to say, but why, why would that person in that encounter be described as the ultimate professional? Because he thought through how to create value to Steve Jobs more deeply than Steve Jobs had thought about how to create value for Steve Jobs. And that's the empathy and the discernment necessary. And you can only have that if you step back and think, if you can create, if you're not so reactive to even the request from the customer, you have to understand what's going on. You have to listen. You have to ask more questions elsewhere. He brought back one solution. It completely solved the problem. Uh, and, and this is how he'd done such iconic work all through his career in creating logos for ABC and Bloomingdale's and many other, uh, you know, amazing logos. And I think uh, what you've also touched upon there is analogous to, so as a strength conditioning coach or, for example, as personal trainers, a lot of time clients say, oh, I want this, this and this. And then personal trainers think, oh, well, they've asked me for that. So I have to give them that. Otherwise, they might go to somebody else when in actual fact, they know that they don't need this, they need X, Y, Z, but they're almost too afraid to say, even though I know you, you need this, they're almost too afraid to tell them what they need because they're so focused on giving them what they supposedly want. Yes, I've, I've experienced that many times myself uh, in my own consulting work that, uh, that if, you, if you think your job is to, is to simply do what the customer asks at the end, uh, you will not... First of all, you will not be used optimally. Uh, and, uh, and that's sort of your own fault. Uh, you've got to be great at listening, great at understanding, become a powerful listener. So it's not about saying no to be unhelpful. It's about understanding deeply and then being able to say, based upon all my experience, you know, I wouldn't do it that way. This is how I would recommend you do it because here's how you'll get the best results. It, you know, whenever I've, whenever I've not done that, I've found that I work harder to produce worse results. Like that's like complete lose, lose. I put in more hours, more effort, trying to personalize, trying to create this whole new thing. I end up giving something that's untested all because someone somewhat on a whim has said, oh, could you do it this way? Um, and, oh, yes, well, I have to do it this way. I react to that thing. That's not the way to produce the great results. You, you, you've, you know. And so this all comes back to core competency. And that's the element, again, I would really agree with Derek, is that you've got to develop a core competency so that you, know, you actually know with some confidence which way is the right way to go about something. And I, I know we're coming up to the hour mark, so I'm just conscious of your time. Uh, I've got yeah. two questions left. Um, one of them, I suppose, is more of a story I'd like you to tell rather than a question. Um, but a lot of people, whether it's through family influences or otherwise, they end up in jobs or careers that they don't really want to be in. And they've 
not yet had that realization you shared a story about your brother and uh dressing up as a certain uh character if you can remember and yeah. you had this realization this is not what i want to do anymore this is uh a little bit outdated if you know what i'm referencing would you mind just sharing that story i do remember this it's um i i was i remember because i was staring at a mirror uh, and staring back at me in the mirror is, uh, is, is, is me, uh, dressed, uh, head to toe in a stormtrooper costume, <laughs> you know, like a really expensive stormtrooper costume, like, you know, like a movie, uh, quality costume. And I'm, I'm looking at this thing and I am in the store basically about to buy it, you know, like, should I buy it? Should I not? And in this moment of looking at it, myself i i realize there's not one ounce of me that still wants to do this um i don't, I don't want to um <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't want the costume well and then and it's the second thought is well how did you get here then i mean you don't, you don't just randomly turn up in this place and I, on reflection i realized that this idea of buying this stormtrooper costume has been with me for 30 years so it it came to my mind 30 years ago when Return of the Jedi first comes out and one of my older brother's remarks in passing, I'm sure he's completely forgotten, but said something like, um, yeah, wouldn't it be absolutely amazing to own like a real Stormtrooper costume right from the movies? And it made this like impression on me. I mean, obviously I thought it must've been fun and cool too, but hearing your older brother say it with all the hype of the movie and so quietly sitting in the back of my mind was this intent around owning one of these one day. Well, that is, is analogous to many other goals, objectives, intents that we pick up in our lives and then never question again. And they can direct us uh, in all sorts of ways that, that we didn't really consciously know about uh, I, I had um, a, a professor at business school who said um, he said you know, goals are the theory that work um, and what he means by it actually is that they work too well that once you set goals and commit to goals they can suddenly go on autopilot which of course is great if that's the right goal, but not so great if it's no longer the right goal. There are so many examples of goals and objectives that we've burdened ourselves with that are no longer relevant. Oh, I need to marry someone who's like this. And we've got these immature versions of what this is. And so then suddenly the right person comes along and we, we can't get over the fact that they don't have blonde hair or they don't have brown hair or they don't have blue eyes or whatever it is that we've immaturely held on to as what it has to be and that's just that's just in a, in, a, in a dating relationship environment but it can be true in your business oh i have to write, build a business that's like this other business yeah but maybe you don't have to do that anymore oh i have to own 10 businesses because my hero owned 10 businesses so i need to do that too but you don't necessarily have to do that what if you want to live a simpler life and you do one business and do it really well what what, what if that stuff isn't serving you anymore and so it's all about challenging the assumptions that you're carrying uh, that, that, are, that, that can be making your life a lot heavier than it needs to be. 
and I suppose almost coming full circle. That's why I asked you what your definition of success was, because, for example, many people might think of Richard Branson as your stereotypical person who's successful. But they said they didn't know what his goals were. If his goal was to lead a quiet life and he was a type A personality who couldn't help himself, then he's failed. But people forget to ask the questions and they forget to revisit them. Um, and they, like you said, they just make blind assumptions. Uh, my final question for you, Greg, is, and this is a question I ask to all guests, is if you could work or observe the work of one person with their employees or their athletes or whoever that might be, who would you like to observe and why? So this is someone, a coach, is that what we're talking about? It can be any any context. So I know you've done work for several huge companies. Uh, it can be a CEO. It can be a coach. Um whoever you want, whoever's work that you're interested in. Um, yeah, if it, if it has to be sort of approximately available today, then I think it would be watching um, the head coach of the Golden Warriors um, because, because he, he's, he's, well, first of all, whenever he talks, he actually has really smart things to say. Um, and... I mean, even after games when, when you know, you've got these 50 reporters around and they're asking what feel, to be honest, pretty ridiculous questions. It, 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 at least it feels to me. What, what do you think that player was thinking when they took that shot at the end of the second quarter? And, you know, like, I mean, just like sp- slicing something so thin and yet expecting something great. I mean... Often when they ask the players these things, they just they're just players they just kind of look at them like oh, that's just such a dumb question. I mean, how do you how do you expect me to know that? But he always seems to actually have like an intelligent answer even to those things. So he's clearly really a thinker. Of course, he was a player uh, for the Bulls through there. You know, I don't know if he was there for all of those championships, but he was there for at least three of the the the, the championships. Um, that they won. And I think maybe more beyond that. And so he's done it both as a player and now rebuilt an exceedingly successful uh, franchise in, uh, in a new era. And I just don't think you can say that about many people. Uh, and, and so he's somebody I would find interesting to observe. Brilliant. I'll, uh, I'll stick that in the show notes along with uh, your, uh, the book that I first came across you um, essentialism and your upcoming books as well. Do you have any, um, any last thoughts that you'd like to chuck out or any, I suppose, a key take home for the listener before we say goodbye? Um, well, I remembered the name of the coach, so it's ah, Steve Kerr. So that, 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 really that helps. Um, but uh, I, I think, look, I just think what I've learned is this, uh, is that essentialism doesn't happen in a day. It's an ongoing process. It's a disciplined pursuit. It's one of the reasons that I'm, uh, you know, that I'm, about to launch a, an essentialism academy, a place where people can have a, a learning experience ongoing. Uh, it, it's why I've done the podcast. It's why I've done the new book. Uh, it, it's, it's why I would do the the one minute Wednesday, which is just a just a short um, uh, injection of essentialism each week. Uh, you know, all of that's at the same place, right? If people are interested, just go to essentialism.com and that's as this conversation evolves, they'll be part of it. Uh, but I just, I recognized a little, uh, not disappointedly, but a little 
um, naively, I have discovered how necessary these other support systems are. I think I used to believe if you get the mindset, it's enough, you'll get behaviors. But I've learned just over time that for many people, that isn't true. Uh, you get the mindset and then you need the extra support or you get pulled back into the non-essential gravity um, that, that exists around them. So that's my final thought. Brilliant. Uh, Greg, just thank you so much for agreeing to this. I really appreciate you making the time and uh, just thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Take care, Greg. All the best. Bye. Thank you for listening to episode number 26 of the Platform to Perform podcast with myself, as always, Todd Davidson and today's guest, Greg McKeown. If you've enjoyed the podcast, then I'd love it if you could leave me a review via your preferred platform and a comment because this will help other people, whether they are athletes, coaches, or just people who want to perform at their highest level, find the podcast. If you feel like you're in a position to support the podcast, then you can do so by heading over to my Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Todd Davidson P2P coaching. In doing so, you'll receive exclusive access to educational strength and conditioning content, programs, and all of my calisthenics kids lessons that I've delivered so far. Thank you for listening. And in the next episode of the Platform to Perform podcast, I'll be speaking to Howard Green about tennis performance in youth athletes. (laughs) 